So our first panel uh, is on the development, uh, modern evolution of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, I am going to introduce our moderator, Judge Shelley Grogan. Judge Grogan will then do a brief introduction for our panelists. And uh, the format is opening statement by all three panelists with uh, some Q&A by the judge and hopefully some crossfire uh, between the panelists and then perhaps some time for Q&A at the end. So Judge Shelley Grogan is a graduate of Marquette University Law School. She spent time in private practice in civil litigation. She has been a clerk at the Wisconsin Court of Appeals District 1 for a number of judges and the uh, Wisconsin Court of Appeals, uh, I'm sorry, for Wisconsin Court of Appeals District 1 for a number of judges, including then Judge uh, Rebecca Bradley and eventually clerked for Supreme Court Justice uh, Rebecca Bradley. She was elected to the uh, Wisconsin Court of Appeals District 2 in 2020, and that is the court she currently sits on. So you can please welcome me in joining Judge Grogan. I'll turn things over to her. Thank you, Attorney Fernholz. It's true honor for me to be here sitting uh, and moderating with three exceptional knowledgeable attorneys who have had many cases at the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And so I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to do this. I'm going to introduce each one. Uh, The first one sitting directly to my left is Anthony Lococo. He is the deputy counsel at the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty. He came there after uh, private practice at the law firm of Foley and Lardner in Milwaukee. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School, and he is the former judicial law clerk to the current Chief Justice of our Wisconsin Supreme Court, Annette Ziegler. He clerked with her for two years, and I had the privilege of clerking with Justice Rebecca Bradley at the same time that Attorney Lococo was there. And then to Attorney Lococo's left is uh, Ryan Walsh. He is a partner at the law firm of Imer Stahl, He graduated from the University of Chicago Law School. He served as Wisconsin's Chief Deputy Solicitor General, presenting many cases uh, to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And he was a judicial law clerk to Justice Antonin Scalia at the United States Supreme Court. And then at the end of the table is Colin Roth. He is a partner at Stafford Rosenbaum's Madison office, graduate of New York University School of Law and former Assistant Attorney General from the Wisconsin Department of Justice, where he represented um, the state in some of Wisconsin Supreme Court's pandemic and election cases. So Matt, uh, Attorney Fernholz explained the format, so we're going to get started right away. And we are going to start with Attorney Lococo, who is going to give us an overview on how the Wisconsin Supreme Court has evolved over the last 20 years. Thank you, Judge Grogan. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. As Judge Grogan just explained, my role on this panel is to be the ghost of Wisconsin Supreme Court's past and discuss the evolution of the court over the past couple of decades. This history will no doubt be familiar to many of you, but hopefully its retelling will shed some light on where the court is now and where it might be going. In my view, at least, it shows the court should be on the eve, or could be on the eve of a radical change in its jurisprudence. At the outset, it's worth observing just how much turnover there is on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. As of next year, when Justice Rogan Sachs steps down, 
five of the court's seven justices will have joined the court in 2015 or later. And in that same short amount of time, we will have seen three chief justices. Now, in some ways, this high rate of turnover is a built-in feature of our court. Our seven justices are elected for 10-year terms, with chief justice being a two-year position, meaning near constant elections. The court we have on a given day can be totally remade in a decade's time. The corollary of this principle is that the dominant jurisprudence of the court can change just as quickly. In other words, a court that places an emphasis on the primacy of the text in one year may be quickly replaced by justices who find legislative purpose more influential, or vice versa. Now, although the dominant jurisprudence can change, of course, it doesn't have to, because Wisconsin voters could very well choose to elect justices who share the same philosophies each year. But in practice, they haven't done so. Instead, we've witnessed some fairly significant swings in the court's approach to cases in a relatively short period of time. One possible reason for this is that the Wisconsin Supreme Court looks like Wisconsin. Our state is famed nationwide for being closely politically divided. So perhaps it's no surprise that we see substantial shifts in the jurisprudence of the court in a short amount of time, whether through votes for our justices or votes for the governor who can appoint justices when there's a vacancy on the court. An additional factor is that our court is smaller than, say, the U.S. Supreme Court, seven justices rather than nine, meaning that each justice carries a weightier vote, relatively speaking. In summary, because we have a more modestly sized court, because our judges are elected, because those elections occur often, and because our state is balanced politically, the Wisconsin Supreme Court is quite a dynamic body. And the modern history of the court illustrates this dynamism. To begin, I want to go back just 18 years to May of 2004 and one of the most cited decisions of the Wisconsin Supreme Court, Coal versus Circuit Court for Dane County. It's an opinion authored by then Justice Diane Sykes, who of course is now a judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. The facts of Kalal are unimportant for our purposes, but there the, the court was uh, faced with a question of statutory interpretation, and Judge Sykes noted that the court's case law and the methodology it applied to interpreting statutes was confusing and inconsistent, sometimes emphasizing the text of the law and sometimes emphasizing legislative intent. So Judge Sykes laid out several bedrock principles of textualism, the primacy of the text, reluctance to resort to extrinsic sources of interpretation like legislative history and so on. And in so defining the rules of the game in Wisconsin, Kalal was a landmark opinion for the state. But there were separate writings. The late then Chief Justice Shirley Abrahamson, the court's longest serving justice and our own liberal lion, concurred to disagree on a number of points arguing that the court should take a, quote, comprehensive view toward determining legislative intent, end quote, rely more readily on extrinsic sources, and consider the, quote, consequences of alternative interpretations, arguably a synonym for public policy. Justice Ann Walsh Bradley, a close ally of Abrahamson's and still on the court today, also concurred and declined to join either discussion of methodology. So as Kalal suggests, as it stood in May of 2004, we had a relatively conservative court with justices like Rogensack, Wilcox, Sykes, and Prosser in the majority, Crooks as a swing vote, and Abrahamson and Bradley in the minority. And I should pause here and note that when I say, this is the usual caveat, when I say conservative or liberal, that's just shorthand meant in the jurisprudential rather than the political sense, conservative denoting commitment to 
textualism and originalism, and liberal denoting the more comprehensive, shall we say, <coughs> approach to interpreting statutes that considers purpose and public policy. So we, we had a relatively conservative court in May of 2004, but then everything changed. Judge Sykes, or Justice Sykes became Judge Sykes of the Seventh Circuit, and Governor Jim Doyle appointed Lewis Butler, quite a liberal justice indeed, to replace her. And because just, Justice Crooks was a moderate, this was enough, together with Abrahamson and Ad Walsh Bradley, to shift the entire dynamic of the seven-justice court far leftward. And in fact, the 2004-2005 term of the court was like nothing Wisconsin had ever seen. It was well summarized in a now well-known Hallows Lecture, given again by Judge Sykes, at Marquette Law School entitled Reflections on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. I cannot do better than her in giving a sense of the decisions issued that term, so I quote the speech here. Quote, in a series of landmark decisions, the court, one, rewrote the rational basis test for evaluating challenges to state statutes under the Wisconsin Constitution, striking down the statutory limit on non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases. Two, eliminated the individual causation requirement for tort liability in lawsuits against manufacturers of lead paint pigment, expanding risk contribution theory, a form of collective industry liability. And three, expanded the scope of the exclusionary rule under the state constitution to require suppression of physical evidence obtained as a result of law enforcement's failure to administer Miranda warnings. End quote. Now the list of cases goes on in the speech, but you get the idea. Judge Sykes wrote that the decisions reflect a court, quote, quite willing to aggressively assert itself to implement the statewide public policies it deems to be most desirable, end quote. I want to illustrate this point by considering for a moment the last case I mentioned, the one expanding the scope of the exclusionary rule, state versus NAP, because it will become uh, relevant to our discussion later. That case involved the question of whether physical evidence obtained as the direct result of a Miranda violation is inadmissible when the violation was an intentional attempt to prevent the suspect from exercising Fifth Amendment rights, self-incrimination. The Supreme Court of the United States had just concluded that exclusion was not required by the federal constitution in those circumstances. But the Wisconsin Supreme Court, in an opinion by Justice Butler, concluded 4-3 that the Wisconsin constitution did require exclusion, while acknowledging that the relevant state and federal constitutional provisions were virtually identical. Rather than base its decision on the text of the Wisconsin Constitution, the court relied on the need to deter police misconduct and to preserve judicial integrity, both policy considerations. This was an astonishing ruling. We'll return to Knapp in a moment. Liberal supremacy on the Wisconsin Supreme Court was short-lived because uh, in 2008, the year after now Chief Justice Ziegler replaced Wilcox on the court, Justice Gableman defeated Justice Butler in his election bid. But the conservative majority only continued growing as Justice Crooks passed away and was replaced by Justice Rebecca Bradley, our court's Clarence Thomas, in 2015. And Justice Prosser retired and was replaced by Justice Daniel Kelly in 2016, likewise a fierce textualist and originalist. Finally, in a change that was emblematic of what was occurring on the court at that time, Wisconsin's voters amended the state constitution to authorize the Wisconsin Supreme Court's justices to choose their own chief, and Justice Rogensack replaced Abrahamson as chief justice. 
Thus, in less than a decade, Wisconsin went from a high-water mark of judicial liberalism on a court presided over by Chief Justice Abrahamson to a high-water mark of judicial conservatism on a court presided over by Chief Justice Rogensack. Someone on the left could well have written an anti-Hallows lecture discussing some of the landmarks of the Rogensack Court. Chief among them, no doubt, would be Tetratech versus Wisconsin Department of Revenue, in which the court, quarterbacked by Justice Kelly, decided to end the practice of deferring to administrative agencies' conclusions of law. This was a startling achievement. Or take Gabler versus Crime Victims' Rights Board, where the court, per Justice Rebecca Bradley, concluded that the legislature could not constitutionally authorize an executive branch entity to investigate and adjudicate complaints against judges. And in Koshke versus Taylor, then Chief Justice Rogensack authored an opinion concluding that the legislature could permissibly require the superintendent of public instruction, a constitutional officer, to obtain gubernatorial approval before engaging in rulemaking through the Department of Public Instruction. In this way, it became very common to see the court deciding significant separation of powers cases. It also became commonplace to see Abrahamson and Ann Walsh Bradley in two-person dissents against five justice majorities. But as we've been discussing, the Wisconsin Supreme Court is dynamic, and this state of affairs did not last. In very rapid succession over the course of just three years, Justices Dallet, Hagedorn, and Karofsky replaced Gableman, Abrahamson, and Kelly. In other words, two conservatives and one liberal were replaced with two liberals and one conservative. And that brings us to the present. The court is now generally seen as fairly evenly split, with Justice Hagedorn perceived as a potential swing and Ziegler as the new Chief Justice. Now I'm grossly oversimplifying, but just to illustrate the even balance of the court, recently we've seen decisions recognizing limitations on the governor and municipalities to issue sweeping health orders during the COVID pandemic. We've seen the defeat of the Trump campaign's challenges to Wisconsin's election results. We've seen, in the same redistricting case, a set of opinions that first favored Democrat Governor Tony Evers' maps and then favored the Republican legislature's maps. But no case better epitomizes what is now at stake than the 2021 case of State versus Halverson. And that takes us back to Knapp, the 2005 Butler decision expanding the scope of the exclusionary rule. Halverson did not involve the same issue as was presented in Knapp, but the defendant had cited it in support of his position. In response, Justice Rebecca Bradley, joined by Justice Ziegler, wrote separately to criticize Knapp's <coughs> mode of constitutional analysis as, quote, unprecedented, and argue that Knapp should be overruled. But this was not the court of the late 2010s. Justice Dallet, joined by Justices Ann Walsh, Bradley, and Karofsky, wrote separately in support of Knapp and of Wisconsin's, quote, robust tradition of independently interpreting the Wisconsin Constitution. To abandon Knapp, she wrote, is to abandon this court's long history of upholding the Wisconsin Constitution's protection against overbearing law enforcement practices, even if those practices meet the federally mandated minimum requirements. So what does this tell us about the court's future? The three liberals on the court in Halverson have shown their hand. They're not interested merely in an incremental change to the court's jurisprudence. By fully endorsing Knapp, they are hearkening back to the aggressive, policy-making chapter of the court's modern history. With only one more seat needed to make that wish a reality, and with the next opening on the court being conservative Justice Rogensack's seat in 2023, 
there's a serious possibility of another dramatic jurisprudential shift on the court in the near future. History may be about to repeat itself. Thank you. Thank you, Attorney Lococo. We certainly have seen a lot of change in our Wisconsin Supreme Court, both with respect to the justices' makeup and the jurisprudence. And we do have some elections coming up. I'm going to ask about the, how you see that changing. But first, we're going to continue on. And we will do um, Attorney Walsh's uh, presentation discussing originalism with respect to the Wisconsin Constitution. Attorney Walsh. Thank you very much, Judge. I want to talk today about the growing importance of Wisconsin constitutional interpretation, and in particular, Wisconsin, what I'll call Wisconsin constitutional originalism. So to review the basics, we are governed under and protected by two constitutions, the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of Wisconsin. And there are important similarities and important differences between the two. Start with the fact that they were both ratified uh, at very different times. One was ratified in the late 1700s. The Wisconsin Constitution was ratified in 1848, uh, before the Civil War, uh, the same year that the Co uh, Communist Manifesto was published. Totally different era. The Wisconsin Constitution was amended, or the federal Constitution has been amended 27 times. The Wisconsin Constitution has been amended over 100 times. And of course, they have different provisions. And the provisions fall into about four categories. One, you have provisions in the Wisconsin Constitution that mirror those of the federal Constitution, maybe even verbatim. Then you have provisions in the Wisconsin Constitution that have slight differences. And maybe the differences can be argued to confer broader protections. Or the third category, they can be argued to confer narrower protections. And then in the fourth category, you have provisions in the Wisconsin Constitution that have no analog at all in the federal Constitution. Like in Wisconsin, we're very proud that we have a constitutional right to hunt and fish. That right has not yet been found in a penumbra to an emanation of the federal Constitution, but I have a lot of hope that it will be someday. So an example might be in the, in the second or third category, we have a provision in the Wisconsin Constitution that protects the right to free speech, but it doesn't say Congress shall make no law infringing the freedom of speech, as the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution does. It says, every person may freely speak, write, and publish his sentiments on all subjects, being responsible for the abuse of that right, and no law shall be passed to restrain or abridge the liberty of speech or of the press. So what is the Wisconsin Supreme Court to do when asked to interpret and apply the Wisconsin Constitution? Well, again, to review the basics, it works differently for the federal Constitution than it does the Wisconsin one. When the Wisconsin Supreme Court sits in interpretation of the federal Constitution, it's effectively the same as uh, a federal court of appeals. Its job is to apply the precedent of the Supreme Court of the United States. If that precedent doesn't address the question, they have an obligation still to answer the question. They can't dodge. Uh, they have to answer the question, but they have to apply precedents that have been given to them, and probably also even the methodology that those precedents of the U.S. Supreme Court adopt. But with the Wisconsin Constitution, it's entirely different. And as this court has said 
uh, for decades, and, and especially more recently, it has an independent duty to interpret and apply the provisions of the Wisconsin Constitution as essentially the last uh, forum in which one can litigate a question of the Wisconsin Constitution. The Supreme Court has no authority to do so. So how does this bear out in practice? Well, take an example from last year. State versus Halverson, which my colleague just mentioned. There was a question in that case whether the admission of a crime by a person who was incarcerated uh, could be used to prove his guilt under the Wisconsin Constitution's analog to the Due Process Clause, or to the actually the, the right not to be uh, a witness against oneself. And the case raised a question of Miranda versus Arizona and what its scope was. And what made it a case about the Wisconsin Constitution in particular was that the criminal defendant was arguing for a rule that the Supreme Court of the U.S. had explicitly rejected. Namely, if you are, in, if you are incarcerated, no matter what question you are asked, as long as you're asked a question and therefore it's an interrogation, Miranda applies because you're in custody. Maybe you're incarcerated for some other charge. Doesn't matter, you're incarcerated, so you're in custody, therefore you have to be Mirandized, otherwise your statements don't get admitted. Supreme Court had rejected the per se rule that you're in custody whenever you're incarcerated, and Mr. Helverson asked our Supreme Court to uh, adopt what the Supreme Court had rejected, except under the Wisconsin's Constitution. And what the court did was said no, unanimously. In an opinion by Justice Hagedorn, the court said, Article 1, Section 8, adopted before incorporation of federal protections against the states via the 14th Amendment, is substantively identical to the Fifth Amendment. It provides, in relevant part, no person may be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself or herself. We have generally interpreted Article 1, Section 8 consistent with the protections afforded by the Fifth Amendment. Halverson provides no textual or historical basis to suggest any meaningful difference between the two provisions, meriting an expanded, judicially created prophylactic rule, which is what Miranda is. Nor do we see any basis in the Wisconsin Constitution for Halverson's request. So, what's the rule? When the Wisconsin Constitution mirrors the federal Constitution, a majority of the court, at least, maybe even the entire court, all the justices, will follow the federal rule unless the text of the Wisconsin Constitution or clear historical evidence shows that the rule should be otherwise. Now, my colleague referred to some of the separate opinions and the sparring that occurred about a previous case on the exclusionary rule, but there's something else in there that's interesting for, for my purposes, which is Justice, uh, Justice Dallet, joined by Justice Ann Walsh Bradley and Justice Karofsky, writes an opinion that begins, the Wisconsin Constitution was never intended to be interpreted in lockstep with the Constitution of the United States, which is a pretty bold statement, and I think probably reflects the views of many of the members of the court, although the different members of the court would approach 
the task of interpreting the Wisconsin Constitution quite differently. More on that in a minute. This also comes up in separation of powers. So in individual rights cases, you have the Federal Bill of Rights and the early articles, the early sections of Article I of the Wisconsin Constitution, which are similar in some respects, different in others. And likewise with the separation of powers, you have, on the one hand, uh, we do have separation of powers in Wisconsin, and therefore everyone takes for granted that the reason powers are separated in Wisconsin is the same reason powers are separated in the federal system. See John Locke, see Montesquieu, see the Federalist Papers and all the authorities that you would use in a federal case. But then how the framers of the Wisconsin Constitution realized the principles that were animating their drafting choices was different than what the framers of the federal constitution did. And so our system of government in Wisconsin looks a lot different. For one thing, we have officials who look like they're ex exercising executive authority who are separate constitutional officers in Wisconsin, not subject to the governor. We also have a Supreme Court who I would argue has a different kind of authority than the Supreme Court of the United States. Our Constitution gives the Supreme Court of Wisconsin superintending authority and administrative authority over all courts in Wisconsin, which they've interpreted to mean uh, they can even intervene in the middle of it, not intervene in the formal sense, but get involved in a case while it's being litigated in the circuit court, regardless whether there's some particular statute that gives a litigant a right um, to invoke that authority. So how does this play out? Well, Gabler versus Crime Victims' Right Board, which my colleague mentioned. Uh, the question there was whether a crime victims board created by the legislature, lodged in the executive, in particular in the Department of Justice, could, could sort of sit in review of decisions made by Wisconsin judges, particularly at the circuit court level, that affected victim rights in some way? And could this executive board supervise judges in a different branch of government? And the court said no, uh, rather stridently, in an opinion by Justice Rebecca Bradley. And you look at the reasoning, and you could be, you would think you're reading a, uh, an opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States. It's Montesquieu, John Locke, Federalist Papers, explaining why it's important that judges have independence and that they not be influenced by other branches and therefore other branches need to stay out of their business. It, uh, it's basically, it reads sort of like a con law one type case that you'd study in law school. But then there are other cases where separation of powers works differently in Wisconsin than it does in the federal system. There's a case this term that hasn't been decided yet. State of, uh, Attorney General Call versus Frederick Prane, which I've had some involvement in. And the question there is whether a, an appointee of Scott Walker who's held over his position beyond the six-year term that the legislature prescribed can continue to exercise the powers of the office because no statute creates a vacancy in the circumstances in which he sits. And both sides approached briefing the constitutional backdrop of this question, very much assuming that the, the principles of federal separation of powers were animating how the court ought to decide the question. So DOJ argued 
Dr. Prane, who sits on the Natural Resources Board, is exercising executive-like authority, so he should be subject to executive-like oversight, which includes the power to remove. The sine qua non of executive oversight is the power to remove, and they cite all the federal constitutional cases that we all studied as one else. And Justice Hagedorn asked a question, an argument of the DOJ attorney. He said, I understand you know, the theory, but what I would like to know is what is the original meaning of the Wisconsin Constitution and what is the historical practice going back to the 1840s surrounding appointments and legislative oversight over appointees? And he says, in so many words, I'm paraphrasing, my law clerks and I have been looking, and it appears that in Wisconsin, the legislature has longstanding authority over appointments, unlike in the federal system. And what that question made clear is that the court, at least Justice Hagedorn, and I'm about to mention some other cases in which other justices have expressed a similar question, is very interested in knowing how Wisconsin constitutional practice differs. They know the basics of the federal constitution. They know the Federalist Papers, etc. What they now want to know is how the different provisions in Wisconsin's constitution were understood at the time they were ratified by the people. So I think this raises four questions, this recent trend. So it's clear the Supreme Court's interested in interpreting the Wisconsin, Wisconsin Constitution and applying it. And where the rubber meets the road in actual cases is where the Wisconsin Constitution might confer a broader protection than the federal one. Otherwise, why does it matter? Because the federal Bill of Rights applies to the state more or less through incorporation. So if your statement to the police wasn't Mirandized and it should have been, you are protected by Miranda because the Federal Constitution Bill of Rights applies to you via incorporation. So whether Wisconsin's Constitution has a Miranda rule but it's narrower than the federal one doesn't, doesn't come up squarely. The question is, is there a textual or historical reason to think that any Miranda rule under the Wisconsin Constitution is broader? I think this focus on whether the Wisconsin Constitution confers broader protections is incomplete, and it's leading the jurisprudence of the court on Wisconsin constitutional questions to be what academics call under-theorized. So in that case, Halverson, we didn't get an opinion from the court analyzing whether Wisconsin Constitution has a Miranda rule at all. Which is interesting because Miranda is one of the few areas where the, where the U.S. Supreme Court has, has come out and said, we're making this up. It's a prophylactic rule, not based on the federal constitution. And for a while, people thought Congress could actually repeal Miranda because it was just a prophylactic rule, basically announced by the Supreme Court sitting in common law. Um, and so because we don't know whether there's a Miranda rule in the first place in Wisconsin, we can't really... Uh, we can't really think from first principles about how far any such right would extend. The second problem is, so suppose you have a case that raises a question of what the Wisconsin Constitution means. 
On the one hand, the court's got this independent duty to figure it out themselves, and they take that very seriously. On the other hand, you better brief it, because the court has said, uh, such as in Halverson, nothing in the text of the Constitution supports Halverson's request. To the extent any historical evidence may assist Halverson, he has not presented those arguments here, nor will we develop them for him. So what are the sources that we all need to begin to brief and study to present arguments about Wisconsin's Constitution to the court? They've told us it's common law as it existed at the time the Constitution was adopted. Constitutional debates, plain meaning of the term at the time. So pull the dictionaries from the 1840s. You can find the list of approved dictionaries and reading law by Antonin Scalia and Brian Garner. So don't use the bad ones. Uh, and then you got to go. You got a budget time to go to the state law library and study the newspapers from the time, study the notes from the state constitutional convention, and put this stuff in your brief. Because if you don't, the law clerks will do it, and they might get it wrong. Because after all, as the critics of originalism like to say, it's just law office history. They're not trained in history, so if it's left to if it's left to a process that's not subject to adversarial testing, the court might get it wrong. Lastly. I think there's a big question about what this trend means for unenumerated rights. So very briefly, the Supreme Court of the United States has recognized all kinds of unenumerated rights under the guise of the substantive due process doctrine, which isn't based on actual text in the Constitution, but it is based on an, an idea of what due process must mean. Wisconsin has a due process clause, but interestingly, it applies only in criminal cases. Did you know this? Wait, I, I, I learned this recently. <laughs> There's a due process clause in the Wisconsin Constitution that applies only in criminal cases. There is a broader provision, Article 1, Section 1, that tracks the preamble of the Constitution of the United States, and the, the court has read that basically to ratify the rights that we understand as sort of federal rights. But there is no, there is no civil due process clause. So what, how do we approach the question of individual rights? Is it, is it all in the general language of Article 1, Section 1, all persons are born equally free and independent? Or do you have to point to some more specific text in one of the other provisions, such as the one on self-incrimination? And then also there's the matter of language. You know, we can't assume that language used in 1789 means the same thing as language used in 1848. So maybe even the provisions that track exactly the federal constitution can't be applied reflexively in the same way that the United States Supreme Court applies the federal versions. And with that, Colin, Thank clear you. everything up. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Attorney Walsh. Nice presentation. I'm going to go on the record saying I am a fan of both constitutions, and I encourage everyone to read them regularly. And now um, we're going to have the final presentation by Attorney Roth, who's going to talk about uh, original actions in the Wisconsin Supreme Court, the, the rise and fall, so to speak. So, Attorney Roth. Thank you, Judge Grogan. Uh, first thing I'm going to have to do when I get back to my office is reread the Constitution. I didn't, I didn't know that. I'm going to have to it's check crazy. my briefs going yeah. forward. So I'm going to talk about original actions, and I think it's a really great topic that I think encapsulates some of what everyone's been talking about up here today. Uh, you really get to see some of the shifts in court personnel and how that's affected uh, things over the last few years. There's a sprinkling of uh, Wisconsin constitutional interpretation and how the courts have been 
uh, how the court's been considering original public meetings. So you really get a little bit of everything in considering the original actions. And so just very briefly, what are the basics? Uh, this is a unique thing, I think, uh, in, in Wisconsin. I don't believe the U.S. Supreme Court has any version of this, right? Is it between states? Not, re not really. Not really, okay. Um, so, right, so it's unique to Wisconsin. It's a, in the state constitution. It provides that Supreme Court uh, may hear original actions and proceedings. It's no more specific than that. But essentially what it means is two parties can come to the state Supreme Court um, and invoke or ask the court to invoke its jurisdiction rather than starting in the trial court and working your way up through the courts of appeals as you ordinarily would. And so why, why do we have this, this unique provision in the state constitution? Well, the constitution itself doesn't really explain it, but I think the, the quintessential case that everyone goes back to is Petition of Heil back in 1938. And more or less, it's questions that are kind of a big deal statewide uh, in, in layman's terms. The, the, the Latin phrase is uh, publici juris. Don't know if I'm saying that right, but essentially it means matters of public importance, matters of public right. That's what the original jurisdiction of the state Supreme Court is meant to address. Very briefly, procedurally, I think one interesting quirk is it requires four votes to, to, to grant a petition to take original jurisdiction, which you might think is, is a little different from U.S. Supreme Court practice where you don't need a majority here. You've got to have four votes. You've got to convince four justices a majority uh, to take your case. And one quirk that, well, it's not a quirk, but a uh, thing that I will come back to as we talk about some of the cases that have come up over the past few years, this is in the uh, state Supreme Court's internal operating procedures. It's, it's very careful to emphasize that it generally will not exercise its original jurisdiction in matters involving contested issues of fact. And as you think about it, that's a, that's a pretty obvious principle why, why the uh, state Supreme Court wouldn't do that. I mean, it's, it's not a trial court, it's obviously an appellate court, and is used to uh, considering issues of law, you know, the, 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 any contested issues typically in an ordinary appellate case have been worked out in the trial court. So as I understand it, this is the court saying more or less, you know, we don't want to deal with your contested issues of fact. If you have a case that involves them, start in the trial court, work them out there, then come to us, but don't start here with your fact disputes. Again, we'll come back to this. We'll, we'll see if that's been the case. Um, so I want to start with the high-level trends. When I saw this chart, it, it really shocked me. I'll, I'll confess I started at DOJ in 2016, so more or less I thought that original actions were the ball game. I, I sort of assumed this is what always happens. We've had so many over the past few years. I thought it was always like this in Wisconsin, <laughs> but thanks to Professor Ball and Marquette, who keeps track of these things, and thanks especially to Judge Grogan, actually, who pointed this out to me, uh, when we first talked about this this presentation, he's put together this this great chart. You can see, I mean, you don't even have to look at it very long. You can tell for so many years the numbers of accepted original actions zero 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 one zero. I mean, this was very rare. And then all of a sudden, um, for reasons I'm sure many of you can guess, and we'll talk a little bit about. 2019-2020 term, these just exploded. Uh, you have more accepted original actions in just that term than you had had in 16 terms before. And, and, and as I'll note, some, even some of the rejected petitions, there were sort of idiosyncratic reasons that probably would have been accepted if not for this. So those numbers could be even higher uh, in, in that term. So this, these cases just exploded. And like I said, I, I thought that's all the Supreme Court did when I came here, because that's all I did at DOJ. Um, so I'll go in a little more detail. So before that explosion, there were still a few. Uh, 
cases involving significant statewide issues. We've heard about a couple of these already. We've got Koshki that involved uh, separation of powers between two, you know, again, and, and Wisconsin has a unique executive branch with, with two um, elected statewide officers. What's the balance of power between the two? Supreme Court decided that was an appropriate topic to take up on its original jurisdiction. Uh, similarly, separation of powers cases seem to be the ones that uh, got the court's attention even in this period of dormancy. We had uh, two partial veto cases, um, both taken up in, in tandem in 2019 involving the partial veto. Again, to, to Ryan's point, uh, this is another unique aspect of, of the state constitution. We have a partial veto written into the constitution unlike at the federal level, so this was a really interesting uh, case that, that we handled at, at DOJ, um, going back and looking at newspaper articles from, from the time. I believe the amendment was passed in 1930. This wasn't uh, a provision that was in the state constitution from the beginning. It was an amendment added much later, so uh, there was a lot of discussion in, in the briefs about <clears throat> you know, what, what was understood at the time this, this, uh, this amendment was originally passed. And, so we got a little look into the jurisprudence of this uh, original public meeting in, in Bartlett and WSBU. But again, those cases, uh, separation of powers, really pure legal issues. Um, I guess if I recall correctly, DOJ, we probably did oppose the petitions for original action, but um, obviously we lost and, and uh, went up anyway, uh, first time before the state Supreme Court. Didn't take all of them. Uh, Voss v. Call uh, is an Act 369 case where the legislature stripped some <clears throat> authority from the Attorney General. We went, well, actually, the uh, Robin Voss legislature sued uh, Josh Call for the way he was implementing that. Uh, Supreme Court said, no, we don't want to hear that on original jurisdiction. So it, it, you, know, you didn't automatically get in just if you had a separation of powers case. Floodgates open in 2020, and I think it's it's quite obvious why we get into the pandemic. And these cases really started coming hot and heavy, uh, pretty much from from you know day one when COVID started started spreading. Uh, you know, it was it was an emergency, and as I'm sure everyone can recall, uh, there were a lot of a lot of responses at, at every level of government, uh, very much including including state government. I think the first uh, the first case that that presented this issue was was Jefferson v. Dane County. So sort of a hybrid election slash pandemic case uh, concerning the uh, meaning of indefinite confinement and when voters could claim that status. But it just uh, the list goes on and on. As, as you can see, we had just a slew of pandemic cases that uh, came to the court on original jurisdiction. These cases didn't start in the trial court, so. You know, and I'll talk about this more. Part of part of the challenge of these cases is you don't have the regular appellate procedure, so you don't have the chance to develop arguments and refine them as they go up on appeal. I mean, typically uh, in a normal case, you've got the trial court, you've got the court of appeals, and then you get your court of last resort. So by the time you get up to that highest court, you know you've had a lot of time to to really refine and perfect your arguments. These cases are very very different, and what compounded uh, that, that uh, difficulty was many of these cases, as, as uh, my friends up here can maybe attest to, is they asked for temporary injunctions. The, the plaintiffs, petitioners in these cases also requested uh, emergency temporary relief time and again. So you have this situation where the state Supreme Court is stepping in in the first instance. Uh, nothing's been developed below, no record, no briefing. 
and this case lands in your lap, uh, incredibly high stakes, very important issues, very complicated issues, you got a temporary injunction motion and it's sitting before your court of last resort and you have you know days to resolve these. <laughs> as I'm sure, again, everyone up here knows well. And this happened time and again. Uh, I think Palm was probably the biz biggest example of this. This was the, the safer at home order that the governor issued uh, early 2020. I don't know the dates in front of me, but uh, that case went from petition to decision in, in just record time. And, and, and as I recall, in virtually every one of these cases, the state would take the position that no, 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 this is not an appropriate matter for an original action. This really should start at the trial court level uh, because as we saw a couple slides earlier, you know, we think there are complicated fact issues that need to be developed here. Uh, that argument never really won the day. Um, these, these cases were, were accepted, uh, as you can see, t time, time and again during this period. Um, and we, we resolved them for the first time in, in the Supreme Court. Uh, just as a side note, uh, Heinrich, this, this really piggybacks off of a couple topics raised earlier. Um, you see Justice Hagedorn, I think, very clearly in one of his concurrences. This is in the final decision, not in the, the original action petition stage, but uh, he issues a very interesting concurrence where he asks the parties very forthrightly to offer arguments on the original public meaning of the, of the state constitution. This was a case involving uh, an order shutting down, a uh, local order shutting down schools, including private religious schools, and so there was a religious freedom element to the case and uh, went up on original jurisdiction. Justice Hagedorn, in his concurrence, you know, made very clear back in 2020 what he wants to hear about his original public meeting. So uh, just to piggyback on that. But you didn't get original jurisdiction automatically, even in this era. There were still some important cases that the, that the state Supreme Court denied uh, original jurisdiction over. Um, one of them was a request from the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers asking for an emergency order uh, basically to, to address the issue of, of overcrowded prisons in the COVID pandemic and how to keep prisoners safe and prevent the spread of, of disease. You know, I, I guess I should say on the side, obviously if the court declines to take original jurisdiction, you know, you're not done. I mean, that, that doesn't have preclusive effect. You can start back in the trial court and many of these cases that we'll get to ultimately took that, took that approach. Original jurisdiction denied, you start back in the, in the trial court and go up. So it's not as if you, you lose all avenues of relief. There's some exceptions to that, which I think have provoked a lot of heartburn on the court when there are, truly are matters of um, just incredible time pressures where issues may be mooted if the court doesn't act quickly, and we'll see some of those as we, as we go forward. So I think the first signs of, of a backtrack or, or, or retreat from this approach of uh, <clears throat> really frequently taking these high stakes, uh, important cases on original jurisdiction was Hawkins versus the Wisconsin Elections Commission. And as some of you may remember, this issue involved uh, the Green Party uh, had a ballot access challenge leading up to the 2020 general elections. There were some questions, honestly, I forget exactly, signature, I, Honestly, I don't even remember this. There was so much going on at this time, but ballot access challenge, and the Green Party went to state Supreme Court and said, hey, look, we need emergency relief. We don't have time to start in the, in the trial court and work our way up. And I think this is really where you see the, 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 the sea change and where things start to shift is in, in, the, in the COVID area, 
what you would typically see is uh, four or five justices deciding to grant petitions. You often gr draw one or two dissents, usually from one of the liberals uh, on the court. Uh, but here, for the first time, you see Justice Hagedorn joining the, the three liberals in declining to accept uh, original jurisdiction over one of these high-profile cases. And in this case, uh, Justice Hagedorn joined uh, the, the three, deciding that the petitioners sought relief too late. Uh, I happen to say that was the position I argued for. Ballots had already been sent, printed, and what they were asking for would have really thrown uh, the preparations for the 2020 general election into chaos. And so I certainly understand why the petitioners went to the state Supreme Court first uh, rather than starting in the trial court. I mean, they needed, they needed a final decision, a final word from the state's highest court immediately, um, but nevertheless. And I think you, what you see in some of these dissents, so you start drawing dissents from these denials uh, uh, of, of original jurisdiction, and you know this sort of piggybacks on the topic of shadow dockets. I mean, these orders are not published. Uh, they're really the only way I got them. I don't have a stock, so I, I had to call up the clerk's office, the law library. It's the only way you can get these. These aren't reported on Westlaw. But I think there's some really interesting uh, dynamics that you can glean from these orders that I think many people just don't know about because, again, these aren't published decisions. But they, I think, really lay bare some of the tensions uh, between the wings of the court that, that we're seeing right now because you start to get some pretty strident dissents in these, in these opinions. And I just have a couple of them uh, up here. Uh, you know, the, the majority are abdicating their obligation to stand with the law. Um, courts need to do better, dodging responsibility to uphold the rule of law. I mean, these are, these are, pretty, these are pretty strong, strong opinions that you're seeing in these purely procedural questions that's at issue here. Remember, this is just the question of whether to accept original jurisdiction. And uh, this case is a little unique in that once it, once it died, it died. I mean, there was no time for, for the petitioners to do anything else. They could not start back in the trial court. So this one is a little, a little unique. But you see it again, even more and even more pointedly, in another COVID case that followed shortly thereafter, Jim Finity v. Dane County. And this was sort of the, the local government um, companion case to Palm. Palm was the statewide executive order that was restricting public gatherings at the early stages of the, of the pandemic. That followed, once that was struck down, some of the local municipalities uh, tried to do the same thing. And so Jimfinity was one of those, those follow-on cases. And petitioners, again, sort of thought, well, let's do the same thing we did in Palm. Let's go straight to the Supreme Court and get an answer. Uh, but Justice Hagedorn says, no, um, let's, let's, slow, let's slow this down. And I think this, is, this really encapsulates uh, what's going on. He says, court's designed to be the court of last resort, not the court of first resort. I hope we return there again. So very clearly, Justice Hagedorn saying, I am... Uh, uncomfortable with what what we've been doing. At least this is how I read him. You know, this is just how I read this decision. But it seems pretty clear that he um, he doesn't want to go there. Rogensack says, "Well, you know, look, I, I understand we've we get many of these petitions, but when it's a fundamental personal liberty issue, I think the court should be taking them." And so that's that's the position that the dissenters took in that case. But because Justice Hagedorn was not on board, it didn't prevail. And so now I think you see a shift and a retreat um, after the the first slew of pandemic cases die down, uh, then we shift to a lot of elections cases and uh, the gates really have more or less closed uh, just as quickly as they opened. And so you can see um, 
even in even in Trump v. Evers, which is sort of the the big Kahuna case that we had over the last uh, couple of years, that first came and it ultimately did get to the to the state supreme court, but. Uh, that was on bypass <clears throat> after they went back to the to the trial court to do the recount litigation. Um, but the first ask was, state supreme court, please take this this case on original jurisdiction, and and they said no. And again, you'll see this time and again, and you you really do start seeing some some very pointed dissents, and uh, you clearly see that Justice Hagedorn's flip in in joining the the three liberals in denying a lot of these petitions has has provoke strong responses from from his colleagues on the bench. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, you can see, again, from, from some of the language in these dissents, uh, Rebecca Bradley, Justice Bradley in particular, uh, seems uh, particularly aggrieved. And I say, so I'll, I'll end with redistricting, which is sort of an exception. Um, but I think, again, it's such a unique case. This is one that they obviously did take on original jurisdiction. And I think this really highlights the objection that, that I had all along litigating these cases at DOJ, which is that, look, some of these cases really are fact-intensive and you can't get around it. And that was the position that uh, the dissenters took when the petition for redistricting came before the court. And I, frankly, I think it was borne out in the reversal, the summary reversal they got from the US Supreme Court and Justice Hagedorn in his concurring opinion when the governor's, or sorry, the legislature's maps were ultimately adopted, he, I read that as a mea culpa. He more or less says, "Look, we didn't have, we didn't have a good record. We didn't have uh, enough facts to make the decision." And frankly, that, you know, that's what I would have said to him if I had been opposing the petition in the first place. Is look, you know, these fact-intensive cases, you really got to be careful before you take them on original jurisdiction because, you know, it, the the state supreme court, in my personal opinion. It's just not designed to take facts. Uh, it's just not something that, that it's meant to do. And so when, when you have to do it in important cases like this, this is, this is what you get. Thank you, Attorney Roth, for the good presentation on original actions. You know, original actions, uh, as Attorney Roth said, they do they need four votes of the seven justices to accept them. Um, they are important because the trial courts are very busy and the Court of Appeals is very busy. And so, uh, you know, if you start your case in the trial court, it can take up to a year or longer, trial court judges, is that correct? And then you, then you go to the Court of Appeals and it can take up to a year or longer. And so when you have issues like the pandemic and elections, um, Original actions are important, and that might be the reason for the high numbers in that in that term. I don't think we have the numbers for original actions from 1917 or 18 term. Last time we had a pandemic, do we, mm -hmm. Colin? No. Okay. All right. Very good. So um, I'll talk to Professor Ball. Maybe he can <laughs> see if see if he that. has those. Yeah. So I just want to ask a couple quick questions, and then we're going to open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, you have three great experienced uh, Supreme Court uh, lawyers up here. If you have any questions, uh, that will be your time to ask. But as Attorney Lococo mentioned, in the last six and a half years, the makeup of our Supreme Court has changed dr dramatically. Uh, there are only currently three justices still serving. Uh, in the, the rest of the makeup has changed. One of those three is retiring in 2023, which is next year. 
And one of those three is uh, term is ending in 2025. So my first question for the panel is, is the 2023 election or the 2025 election going to have a large impact on the Supreme Court decisions? Anyone want to volunteer to start? Uh, I certainly think they'll have an outsized impact, as I mentioned in my talk. Uh, there, there could be a scenario where the justices that on the currently on the court um, uh, are not uh, quite as far to one end of the spectrum with respect to their judicial philosophies, but that's not the case here. Um, if you're supporting a case like Knapp, uh, as I went through, where the court is talking about deciding constitutional cases, uh, constitutional cases on the basis of public policy. Um, that is a very aggressive approach to judging. Um, so, I, I, as I mentioned, I, I think uh, the election could make a huge difference if Justice uh, uh, Rogensack is replaced by someone who is in the same uh, uh, jurisprudential camp as Dalek, Karofsky, and Walsh Bradley. You could see the court um, taking some very significant steps uh, toward, um, as Ju Judge Sykes said, achieving the public policy goals that they see as most desirable, whether that be deterring police misconduct in uh, Halverson or uh, some other policy. Any? Yeah, I, I would agree and, and disagree to an extent. I mean, I think clearly right now the court's on a knife's edge. It's it's three three, and Justice Hagedorn is is the swing vote who everyone's uh, pitching to, um, and clearly that balance could shift with the election. I mean, I would say. To paraphrase Justice Kagan, I mean, I don't know. I mean, is everyone, we're all textualists now, we're all originalists now. I mean, I, I haven't seen a big push to take Kalal, for instance, which, as a side note, I don't know if I've ever cited a case so often and had no idea what the facts are, what it was about. Um, but, I mean, I haven't seen a big push from, from any of the members of the court now to retreat from that method of, of statutory interpretation. Um, you know, original public meeting, again, I, I, I haven't seen a, a big push from the members, the, the left members of this court to, to retreat from that. Not to say it couldn't happen, um, but it does seem that Justice Kagan may have been more or less right. Everyone has sort of accepted and internalized this, this approach. And so while surely there would be a change if Justice Rogensack was replaced, uh, you know, in these sort of methodological questions, I'm not so convinced that there would be um, the kind of revolution that that you know one might think there could be, but who knows? Attorney Walsh, would you like to comment? Just one point, which is I think it will matter a lot in that world what we know about the individual justices' views on story decisis. I don't think it's abundantly clear what they all think about story decisis. In my, from my own experience, I would venture a hypothesis that they all think that if a precedent is egregiously wrong, it ought to be thrown out in so many words. And it doesn't take much to get from wrong to egregiously wrong if you stare at it long enough and you get <laughs> mad enough. So, um, but that's the big question. I could be wrong about that. It could be that stare decisis will protect precedents that the new majority doesn't like. Um, that would be a big question. Uh, okay, the next question I have is on 3-3 decisions. 
Uh, we've seen several of them this term, and we see them every term. Of course, we have seven justices for a reason. It's so that you don't spend the time briefing and arguing the case only to get the result that it's a tie. We can't decide, and we're going to affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. With the 2023 election, do you think there will be a better chance of not having 3-3 tie decisions? Uh, I've got an answer for that. I think uh, too soon to say, um, in part because, um, and this goes back to uh, w. Or James V. Heinrich, which was one of these cases um, that was discussed, original action. Some of the debates that have been occurring on the court uh, get to this question of prudence versus fortitude. It kind of ties in with the stare decisis idea as well. Uh, and that's a separate question, I think, from it gets to the idea of how far should you reach in deciding issues, uh, reaching out to <coughs> decide issues that may, maybe do or don't need to be decided in a particular case. And I think that's a slightly different question from textualism versus purposivism or, or some of these other philosophies. Um, you can have a textualist uh, like Justice Hagedorn, who is perhaps a little bit more cautious, let's say uh, this, the different semantics can be used. Uh, in, in deciding issues, and I think exactly how the particular justice's um, philosophy falls on that question, I think we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Anyone else want to comment on the? I guess if it's a court of appeals judge who gets elevated, I mean, that strikes me as when you most often get the recusals, right? Mm -hmm. um, or a circuit court. Or a circuit court judge, right? So it just depends on, on who's running. Okay. Um, and this will be my final question. We'll open it up. I want you to assume for uh, the moment that in the 2023 election, we elect a conservative such as Justice Dan Kelly, and we are looking at the 2025 the name names. election. <laughs> um, you know, if Justice Kelly is elected in 2023, do you see any change in the jurisprudence? Um, or will we need to wait until 2025 for anything to change? Would you like to start, Attorney Walsh? Sure. I mean, you know, Justice Kelly, who I've had the privilege of arguing in front of many times, is not like anyone else. Now, what am I going to say next? <laughs> so having him on the court will obviously change things. I mean, he was... On the court, he was very, uh, very principled, very committed to originalism, um, extremely committed to getting every case right, was academic, wanted to dig in to the, to the treatises and the history. So, yeah, having Justice Kelly on the court, it changes everything. I mean, as a pr practitioner, you brief things differently, even though I think Justice Rebecca Bradley is of the same mold. Um, it, yeah, I think it would certainly change how I brief cases before the court. Any other? The attorneys want to address that? I, I just leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you want my real answer? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's here's a just a, a procedural question for you. Um, the Supreme Court recently switched to having two oral arguments scheduled 
on oral argument days instead of three. Do you think that was a wise choice, or uh, do you think that the three oral arguments a day worked better for you? Sometimes you want them to be a little sleepy. Other times you want them more awake. <laughs> I'll answer a different question, which is that they should not schedule an hour argument for every case. Not every case merits an hour. And if you talk about a case for an hour, when you ought to talk about it for 20 minutes, it will seem more complicated mm -hmm. than it is. Mm -hmm. And I would argue the converse. I mean, I, I think there's, there's been some cases. Now, redistricting, they cut out more or less a whole day <laughs> to argue that. But I know there's been some cases that I've argued where I felt like, you know, frankly, more time could have, could have been used. Right, it and, works and, the other way, too. Right, and, and that there were still justices on, on the bench who had more questions if, if there had been a little more time. So I would generally, I mean, look, if the court's taken a case, I would lead in favor of just giving people more, more time. I mean, these are the most important cases. Attorney Lococo, any thoughts? You were with the court when uh, there were three arguments per day. Yes, uh, th that was a long day, I would say. Um, but uh, I think it's really, in some ways, um, the court is still I feel finding its footing a little bit. You see some discussion of how many cases it should take per year. Uh, as you pointed out, how many oral arguments in a day, how long should the uh, hours be? And that's, to me, really a question for the justices uh, in view of themselves and then also their staff. You know, um, I think two probably makes more sense than three. I think that's more than enough uh, for consideration, but it's really their call. Did anyone notice that in the last month of oral argument that they changed the time to 8.30 in the morning instead yes. of 9.45? Any, any thoughts on that? <laughs> 9.45, please. Yes. <laughs> 8.30, I'm barely out Okay. All right. Um, is, does anyone in the audience have a question they'd like to direct to the panel? Yes, Christine. Attorney Roth, would you like to start? Boy, I, I, I can't count how many times I've had this conversation with, with my colleagues. Um, I, you know, I think in a state like this, you need that level of responsiveness. In a state that really is 50-50, more or less, as far as I can tell, um, you know, if the court is not responsive to what the people Want. I, I don't know. That just strikes me as a recipe. You, you know, if, if the alternative is, is sort of lifetime appointments, um, that, I don't know. That's a really hard question. Yeah. <laughs> there's you, just no, I mean, there's no, there's no. Do thing. either one of you want to? 
weigh in? It's a great question, Christine. I wish I had thought about it more than I have. I know a lot of people have their books comparing judicial um, models in various states, how judges are elected, what generally are the results, if you can quantify it. And it's a whole literature that I haven't read. I guess I'd say what I like about our current system, I think I like as citizen is the is the ten year term. I think it promotes independence. I think you know if if I were on the bench, I wouldn't want uh, to be worried that my decisions or opinions in the first year on some criminal procedure matter or something that doesn't seem like an earth-shattering big deal would be under a microscope the next year if I'm up for election again. I think I would like the independence that a 10-year term uh, would give me. So that seems that seems right, but I don't have any opinions about any, any of the other features of it. Yeah, I mean, the concern usually voiced with uh, elected judges is that they're thinking about their re-election, but uh, not being a judge, I would speculate that federal judges, you know, have to wrestle with their biases and keep those in check the exact same way, or not the exact same way, but uh, in a similar way to, to the way that state courts do. And if, if you have a judge that's going to let elections sway them um, and that type of person gets elected to the federal bench, you'll run into different problems. So I think electing good people or appointing good people, uh, people with the right temperament uh, is, is really what's key and you know the system may be not quite so important. We certainly have a lot of people talking about different ideas. Uh, some think a 10-year term is too long. Uh, the trial court judges and the court of appeals judges serve for six years. So there was a proposal uh, some years back about limiting terms to one 16-year term. There's also talks about age limits rather than term limits. Many of the judges elected and justices elected serve until the day they die, and um, people have different feelings about that as well. But good question. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, yes. So is the, uh, would you say that Wisconsin's electoral system for justice, justices or just judges in general um, is antithetical, well, uh, originalism is very much disabled by it, or it's not a optimal method of, of interpretation given the, um, uh, uh, given it's in, well, given how, given how the Constitution is structured via the electoral system? Attorney Walsh, would you like I, to? I think it's probably neutral with respect to originalism. I think as an originalist, you'd want a court full, or maybe not entirely full, maybe you'd want a little bit of battle uh, between the two sides, but you'd want a majority of judges who think that their task is to discern the original public meaning of a provision at the time of its enactment, and that you would want them to be very good at that. Um, aside from that, I don't think you'd, you'd much care. And I guess I could see if, if the electorate thinks that the judge they elect is, is maybe not going to do what they want in the current day, but rather, you know, what the what the drafters intended 200 years ago, maybe the electorate would want to pick a judge who's going to ignore that and do what they want to do now. I mean, I, that actually is sort of an interesting point of view. I hadn't thought of that. Okay, any other questions? Yes, Judge Koshnick, who heard, who heard the lawyers say they do not like an 830 oral argument. <laughs> Uh, I was the trial judge in Nap, and just an interesting <coughs> footnote, I'd be interested in your response to this. 
Um, so I did not suppress, because the law said you don't suppress this weapon from Miranda violation. NAP 1, state Supreme Court, liberal majority said, we believe the U.S. Supreme Court would require this to be suppressed. That's the direction they're heading. Reversed me based on federal interpretation. U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you got it wrong. We're not heading that direction. Comes back down to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and says, well, since that didn't work, we're going to apply this new federalism theory, which I actually agree with in the abstract, but they did it very selectively because when it suited them, they were able to say, well, the Wisconsin Constitution has broader rights for criminal defendants than the federal Constitution, which they do have the power to do. What, other, what else I think underscores the activist nature of it was that they applied that rule retroactively. So when the officer made the decision not to read the Miranda rights, the rule was federal law and state law, no suppression of physical evidence if you wanted physical evidence. So if you're going to do that, I think it's only fair to say going forward, police officers are now on notice. If you do this, this will be the consequence. And I think that renders the liberal majority's new federalism approach in that case in particular uh, selective and even uh, illegitimate. Thank you, Judge. Um, I, I do not personally agree with the approach they took in that case. I, I, I'm glad you brought up the new federalism. That was pointed out by uh, Justice Crooks in a separate writing in that case. And he was referring to this famous article by um, Supreme Court uh, Justice Brennan telling uh, state um, litigators uh, essentially to make use of their state constitutions. And, you know, uh, in the abstract, uh, that's that's correct. As uh, uh, Ryan was explaining, it, we should pay attention to differences in wording, differences in history, but um, that can be taken too far. Uh, you know, the sheer fact that you are able to use uh, Wisconsin constitutional provision differently doesn't necessarily mean that you should. I agree with that. We have another question, Jesse. I think compared to the U.S. Supreme Court, the members of our Supreme Court are more um, open-minded and, and gettable from an advocate's point of view, um, at least in my experience. I'm, they, they clearly most often walk in with a particular view of how they will vote. But just from the dynamics of the conversation, you know, it, I've seen it a number of times where a justice starts out one place and then the justice is clearly moving during argument, and maybe the justice swings back or maybe not. And that's, that's much rarer at the U.S. Supreme Court and then in federal courts of appeals, you know, you practices vary widely. So, yeah, I think I, I do see that a fair amount, and I, and I like it. I think that's, that's the purpose of argument, right? You're not just up there to get beat up, I don't think. It feels that way sometimes. It does feel that way. <laughs> Anyone else like to comment? I, I've found that to be particularly true with Justice Hagedorn. I mean, he's he's been the one that I've I've been able to pull over to my side most often, and, and <laughs> you know, some of the other ones it really is beating your head against the wall, um, but it's still fun. But Hagedorn, I can tell is you know, I've I've done arguments where I can see him taking notes. Trump v. Biden, I'll never forget. I was reading through the statutes, and I could see him scribbling as I went, and there it was in the opinion. So he's listening. <clears throat> 
Well, my observations, uh, and of course I'm limited as what I what can disclose, as is Anthony, because we worked in the Wisconsin Supreme Court, so we know whether or not they had their minds made up before they came out to oral argument. Of course, that's confidential, but I will say that uh, you know Judge Ralph Adam Fine, who worked at the Court of Appeals, he grilled both sides equally. Um, you know, he really believed in in doing that, so he wouldn't reveal what his position was. Um, I can pretty much tell which way an opinion is going to go in the Wisconsin Supreme Court by watching oral argument and listening to the questions. And so um, I, I like that. Um, <laughs> I think they should ask the questions that they need answered in order to you know, make up their decision. But um, you know, it's it's different from I think a more of an old school approach where the judges never tip their hand. Any other questions? Yes. Okay. Does does anyone want to take that? I mean, hot court and cold court basically just you. Do you want to? Answer that. Oh, I actually think really the moderator here. The I'm not supposed to be answering answer. questions. Um, you know, hot court just means everyone's asking questions. You never get an opportunity to put your argument in. Cold means you get no questions. Um, and so, you know, it's really supposed to be a conversation between you and the justices. So you would, you know, you want a, a hot court. Um, I think you're asking, can you tell who's going to write the opinion by who's asking questions? Is that what you're? Well, they make the decision right away. They go into the conference room and decide. Um, and they used to conference before oral arguments as well. Um, so I'm not sure I'm answer answering your question. Does anyone else want to weigh in? I, I, I just wanted to point out, I, I agree with you, Judge. Uh, what you don't want is questions to end 10 minutes in an argument, because that usually means somebody's goose is cooked. And uh, you know uh, it's been decided. They do not choose who writes the opinion until after. And the way that they do this, and this is not confidential, is they have a bright green St. Patrick's Day hat in the conference room. It was former Justice Crooks. And they have poker chips numbered one through seven. And those go in the hat. And they draw a chip if your chip happens to be number four, which is our current Justice Rebecca Bradley's chip. She's assigned to write the opinion unless she's not in the majority, and then they would draw another chip. Question in the back. Do you think the chip drawing system undermines the court's ability to reach decisions? Right? Like there's no strategic assignment uh, to maintain a whole majority to make sure. Does that, does that lead to more lead opinions rather than more majority opinions? I'm going to let. Anthony, uh, answer this because I feel like I'm uh, overstepping my moderation duties here. Um, I, I do think lead opinions, I'm not really going to answer your question, Daniel, but <laughs> uh, I do think lead opinions have been a challenge in the past um, for the court, and I don't know what the solution to that is. It's probably case specific. I mean, they just happen sometimes. For those who aren't aware, lead opinion meaning you know, no binding majority, which means that the decision is not going to, it's not going to uh, bind any lower courts going forward. Um, 
I am surprised sometimes that it, it doesn't seem like there's more horse trading going on behind the scenes when you get a lead opinion that comes out and there's, you know, four or five different writings. And you see areas where it seems like maybe the justice could have agreed. Um, but, you know, without being in the room, you just never really know what happened. So that's my non-answer to your question. Dan Kelly is here. You could talk to him uh, afterwards if you'd like. Uh, I think I saw one more question. No, we answered it. Great. Well, uh, thank you for your attention and attendance here. We're going to uh, exit the stage because we are past our time, and we want to get the next panel up here. But uh, please join me in um, thanking Attorney LaFocco, Attorney Walsh, and Attorney Roth. <laughs>